Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. Our mind sponsor for today is Modern Career. The Modern Career podcast, coaching, and workshops enable you to navigate your career in an ever-changing world and help you live your full potential. Mary Humiston, a former Chief Human Resource Officer of Rolls-Royce, shares insider tips, including insights from leaders and executives from all over the world. Leverage their expertise. They can help you build resilience, overcome obstacles, and feel more fulfilled every day. Visit modern-career.com right now to schedule a session with one of their experienced coaches, and if you use code ACHIEVE20, you'll get 20% off. On this episode, we have Tom Caresti. Tom was born in Hungary and migrated to the U.S. when young, learning English for the first time late in elementary school. He studied engineering following in his father's footsteps and joined consumer products juggernaut Colgate Palmolive. He earned an MBA while working. Once the Iron Curtain came down, Tom was selected to run the company's operations in Hungary. That led to other overseas assignments in Prague, Amsterdam, and Mexico City. He recently published a book entitled C-Suite and Beyond that highlights his various experiences and shares his insight honed over years building and turning around businesses. Tom, thank you so much for being on our show. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, share my thoughts, share my experiences on, on podcasts and share it with the world. So i uh, love, love to join you. Thank you so much for the invite. Absolutely. Well, and it's quite a varied range of experiences that you've had. So I uh, can't wait to, to dive into that, including a, a mutual passion of wine that we've just uh, discovered in the last uh, five, 10 minutes or so. Um, I know that you spent the bulk of your uh, youth growing up in, in New York, but uh, you were born in Hungary. Yes, I was uh, born in Budapest. I was about 12 when I came okay. to the U.S., and landed in New York City. Uh, what brought your family over? I'm just curious about. Uh, well, um, my my mom and dad were divorced when I was quite young, and um, in in those days, really the ticket out of Eastern Europe was either sneak out, or get married yeah. to a to a foreign citizen. So mom um, had an old colleague that uh, I think actually he snuck out or something, uh, wow. but he was living in New York, and they kept in contact for many years and. She went to visit him once or twice, and then the third time she came home and said, I got married and we're moving to the U.S. <laughs> so wow. As a 12-year-old, okay. it was all, you know, it was full of excitement, but it was also anticipation because... Yeah, you know, naturally. Now, do you have home. siblings? I have one older sister. She lives in Boston. Uh, just okay. outside of Boston, she's, a, she's an MD, OBGYN. Okay. And, uh, and so, obviously, she took that journey with you. Yeah, it was uh, my mom and my sister. That was it. And then uh, later on, my grandma joined us as well. And grandma lived with us for, for many years. Wow, wow fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So what was that like growing up uh, in New York, newly arrived? So, um, yeah, the, when I first arrived, obviously, 
I didn't speak any English. Sure. Um, some people say with my accent, I still don't speak any English. <laughs> well, it's a very distinct English. It's yes. uh, We can tell geographically. I lived in New York for a number of years. And so this is very familiar to me. I'm, I'm very comforted hearing this. <laughs> it's, a, it's a New York slang. And um, I guess that's what stays with you is, is you know, when you're growing up in teenage years, that, that's what stays with you. Um, but anyway, at the age of 12, I hit the streets in New York and not knowing one word of English. And, um, you know, the, the first week I was, uh, I was there, I saw a bunch of kids playing outside. So I, uh, being an extrovert, I went out and started playing with the guys and obviously we couldn't communicate, but, uh, I came home very excited after the play. And I said, Hey mom, I learned a new English word. And she goes, Oh, what is it? And I said, shit. <laughs> so the kids taught me how to say shit. I had no idea what it meant, but I learned it. And then um, they quickly got me uh, an English tutor. Uh, so, <laughs> so between, um, I think we came in, uh, I want to say June. Yeah, I think it was either June or July that we came. And then, uh, you know, school year started in September back then. So um, got a tutor for about uh, two months. So by the time I got to school, at least I had a little bit of knowledge. So. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, fantastic. It's funny anyway. It doesn't matter. Well, that was inevitable, but uh, you obviously suffered through that, and uh, you didn't lose the uh, extroverted side of your personality. No, thank you. Definitely goodness. did not. I'm, uh, yeah. I love people. I love talking to folks. I love meeting new folks. So it's just uh, that's part of me. Yeah. Well, and you developed a fondness for business. Um, was there some experiences uh, in your childhood that uh, kind of triggered that, you think? Uh, dad was an engineer. So, you know, that kind of a lot of, you know, kids want to grow up with their dad. This, so, um, mm. but I think in my generation, I, I think the, the, the XYZ generation is, is a lot more frequent. But even with my generation, I think the average is, people change careers 2.3 times in their career. Right. right. Um, so I, I'm above that because I, I, I started off as an engineer, then I got my business degree, I went into um, IT, from IT, I went into finance, from finance, I went to sales and marketing. So I, uh, I'm above well. the 2.3. But yeah, the, yeah. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're impacting the curve. Yeah, you kind of, um, you look for opportunities. Yeah. And, and where those opportunities uh, arise, that's one, you know, that's kind of what you follow. So yeah, part of it obviously so. is, is planning. So you want to have a growth plan. Everybody should have a growth plan. Nobody sure. wants to be worse off than they were yesterday. You know, right. I want to no. be, be skinnier tomorrow than I am today. I want to be in better yeah. shape tomorrow than I am today. I want to be yeah. smarter tomorrow than I am today. So Amen to that. Yeah. growth curve. And, um, and so there's certainly some planning behind it, but, also some opportunities so right right wrap them when they when they come along so uh, uh i'm curious when you were at nyu um what did you study there uh engineering engineering is what you it did. was actually yeah. um it was called the polytechnic institute of new york and since okay. then uh it merged into nyu so now it's part of nyu at that time it was just Polytechnic institute of new york uh, it was one of the better technical schools in in the new york yeah. area so i got my uh, bsme um graduate with that started oh, working mechanical engineering was mechanical engineering. yeah uh, nice so yeah it uh, 
you know, with all these, with the college degree, really what you do is you open the door. Yeah. Get in somewhere. And, and uh, when I graduated in 1980, which was many, many years ago, but in, <laughs> in 1980, um, I just hit it right where by, I think by February or March, I had uh, three or four job offers. Well, fantastic. So I already knew, you know, where I was going when I, when I graduated. So it was, um, it was uh, you... kind of lined up and uh, yes. it opened the doors, but it's, you know, like any graduate, you get into a company and yep. then, and then you make the best of it. So of course, yeah. In life. Yeah. Now, was that at uh, Colgate that you started? Yeah, that was the first company. It was Colgate. Um, yeah. In there. Um, what they did was they, they hired whoever they hired, they put in their, um, I would say, evaluation pool for six months. Okay. So they kind of put you into different jobs, different, I would say, different projects for different parts of the company. Yeah. Um, and then um, I ended up, um, what, one of the first things they do is they make you, um, not a glorious for an engineering, but they make you a shift supervisor on in the factory floor. Wow. So, um, you know, I was in charge of a, a small production facility uh, in the, the toothpaste area. I uh, did that for several months and then went into engineering, you know, classical engineering. And then uh, from there, I went into um, designing computer systems for, for assembly lines. And then um, kind of took that, um, that knowledge and went over to um, corporate uh, communications and in computer systems for marketing sales and finance. So I got to meet a whole bunch of new people there. And I said, Okay, well, this is pretty cool. I had enough hearing, so let me do something else. That's when I started going for my MBA. Okay, uh, nice. And then I got, uh, I was just fortunate. I had a, a great mentor, uh, this guy, uh, Dr. Frank Varela. He was uh, my yeah. boss there uh, for about two years. And he liked what he saw for God knows what reason, but he just kind of liked it and he invested in me. That's and, great. And so you did your MBA while you were working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a uh, rough duty. Um, it's much cheaper that way. <laughs> <laughs> that's wise. Yes, that's, that's a more more efficient use of capital. <laughs> well done. You now, um, I learned a lot more in life um, on the job and in, in situations than school could ever teach me. Of course, no, uh, that's true. So, um, you know, when I was uh, working for Frankie, um, he got me on a at that time. We had uh, this guy, C.K. Prahalad. He was from the University of Michigan, and he worked with a lot of Fortune 100s on this strategy. So C.K. Wow. came in, um, and frankly, put, Frank put me on a team, a strategy team. Um, and you know, C.K. just worked with the leadership of the company to say, okay, what's you know, what should our strategy be going forward? You know, what's our brand equities? Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, oh. There's such a thing as a brand equity. I didn't know. <laughs> so kind of learned that and came up with yeah. a vision and a strategy for each one of the categories. Um, and oddly enough, after that um, session or, or that that uh, you know two or three week period of working with CK, uh, Colgate became the number one toothpaste company uh, five years later in the world. Wow! So that's actually well putting implementation strategy and. Yeah. and you know, the rubber heats the road. And yeah. and at that time, Colgate was a not a distant second, but definitely behind Procter & Gamble. Right. Uh, and then 
after the strategy you know, meeting, we did some acquisitions, we did some other growth plans and we became the number one oral care company in the world about five years after. That's fantastic. Well yeah. done, congrats on that. Well, it's not me. There's a lot of other people on it, obviously. <laughs> well, you were part of that team. So. I was part of the team. So it was kind of fun because I learned a lot. Um, yeah, no, for sure. Well, and uh, I'm just curious, personally, did you start a family around that time or after your uh, MBA? I, I had a family. Um, no, no, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I was thinking, did I start a family if I went overseas um, to, to take international assignments? Um I got married in 87. Okay. So, so you've been with Colgate about seven years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then by your 11th year, that's when this uh, odyssey around the globe kind of began. Yeah, so 91. So, um, so I, I kind of we kind of went down that tangent, but then I, uh, I kind of lost my train of thought there. But, um, you know, what happened was, again, Frank was a pretty smart guy and, you know, he invested in me we actually put a a growth plan together for me which mm. consisted of yes. me presenting to um at least four executive vps okay All right, so the idea was to to get me in front of these folks get me you know get exposure um so we we had a whole plan that we put together in fact the first part of that plan was me going to a speech therapist because you know, back in the 80s, I, I, I spoke so fast that nobody could understand because I was going to look really, right? So I really wow. was so just became conscious of, of the speed, slowed it down, um, make sure I, you know, accentuated you know, things that I wanted to say. So uh, speech classes. Um, and then um, we did materialize on, on presenting to those four executive VPs. Uh, plus a whole bunch of other folks in in the um, in that process, and then the Iron Curtain came down, and then just like every multinational, they looked at their portfolio and said, "Okay, who speaks the native languages?" Right. Mm. Um, so if I, you know, if, if it was Polish or Russian or something, if I was born there, probably they don't send me, you know. But out of twenty thousand employees, four people spoke Hungarian. Wow. So um, and out of the four they knew me because I just, I was top on their minds because I just, <laughs> you just talked to them. Yeah. Executive That's fantastic. Said, oh, yeah. I will send Tom. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, That's brilliant. So that's why, you know, it's, um, it's actually, you can say, look, it, it, that was two years in the making. Yeah. Right. Of, of, you know, growing and get ready. And then when the opportunity comes, you gotta be ready. Sure. You know, if, if, if the opportunity came, and I wasn't ready. They would have passed me by. It would have been one of the other four people instead of me. Right, right. So you always have to prepare. You always have to continue to grow. And then when the opportunity comes, then you grasp it. No, that's a great uh, lesson uh, to, to share with the audience. So thank you for uh, driving that point home. Yeah, yeah. that's great. And so uh, tell us about the experience in Hungary. You were a uh, country manager for all Colgate Palmolive products? Yeah, so it was, uh, um, it was uh, first it was a, a greenfield operation. Uh, so literally I, you know, I had a rent car. I had a cell phone wow. in my briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> Back in those days, the cell phones were still analog and they were literally the size of my briefcase. With a, yep. a small handle on it, just like a regular you know, phone. Um, 
And then, um, you know, obviously it was a little bit easier because because of the company and the size of the global footprint of that company. You know, we had relationships. We had relationships for advertising agencies. We had relationships for lawyers. So, you know, we were basically, I was able to use those relationships, but, you know, it was just find an office, find people. Um, yeah. You know, so, so it was just building it. And within um, four years, um, we went from zero to 12 million in four years. Wow, phenomenal. And yeah. were you headquartered in Budapest? Yeah, yeah. Nice. And then uh, we bought a small, um, we bought another brand. It was a, a skincare brand. Um, and um, that was outside of, of Budapest, which was a small factory. So then we had, um, then we kind of got a much larger staff because you had a you know factory, factory staff as well, not just the uh, the head office with sales and, and marketing. So, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, it's uh, you know I was in Eastern Europe for many years, and it was it was a great time to be there because um, the the stuff that you learn in classrooms or the stuff um, you, you got to work on in the U.S. was was all theoretical stuff, you know, and we got to actually do it in practice. <laughs> we're, we're buying companies, we're exactly. launching, um, you know, just, and, and it was just, you, you could call it the crazy wild, wild east back then, but um, right. it was cheaper to do, you know, to launch a product in the market than to do a study. Yeah. So, you know, launched it and, uh, you know, it, it was just much easier to do it that way. That's great. I mean, uh, zero to 12 million is, is phenomenal. That's great. Great progress. Yeah. Um, you made a switch at that point to join Philips, another very large consumer. Man, you, you looked at my CV really closely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was such an engaging story. I, I, I got lost in that. I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to talk to Tom. These are amazing experiences. Yeah, so uh, so CV. So, so what happened was after a little while, um, I developed a reputation in Eastern Europe. So my name got to be known a little bit. So headhunters started calling me. Um, mm. So um, after you know 14, 15 years with with uh, Colgate, we, you know we made a switch, um, and that was it was it was tough. That was like going through you know a divorce almost. Um, yeah, you know after you. Your and my whole almost my whole identity was kind of wrapped up in that job, and and I learned later on that's that's actually a mistake. Um, yeah, you are who you are. Um, you know, there's things that we all do, but it, that shouldn't define us. True. Uh, you could be an accountant, you could be an engineer, you could be a marketeer, you could work for company X Y Z, um, but that's not you. That's just yeah. what you do. That's what you do. Exactly. Who you are is 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 a very different definition. It took me a while to to figure that out, and I'm pretty. Mm. And we'll talk about that if you want in, in a little bit, because uh, that's also part of the book. Um, it's a very important part of the book to define um, those, uh, you know, those who you actually are and and that yeah. kind of stuff. So, uh, no, but anyway, um, yeah, Phillips was uh, was a short stint. It was only about a year. Okay. Uh, it was. Um, you know, when they hired me, it was a pretty cool job title that they gave me. Um, but then I found out it was really, in, in effect, what I was, a, was a, only a logistics manager. <laughs> oh, dear. So, so you know, they gave me, uh, they gave me a, a title of general manager for the consumer electronics and domestic appliances division, right? So I had this 
really grandiose, you know, two large categories, consumer electronics, television, yeah. all that stuff, you know, and then domestic appliances, washers, dryers, all that stuff. So yeah, theory sounded great. Right. But then, um, you know, six months into it, it was really just uh, begging for product from Vienna to come down and, and it became like a glorified logistics uh, oh, assignment. Right? So, you know, yeah. why, why bother advertising? Why bother marketing if exactly you don't, don't have, have a supply you know, you're getting product what product you're getting you have no input into it anything so wow. uh, that was a, it's a waste know, of your talents for sure yeah so that was a year and then i went over to bankiser spent five years with them um great company there at the time they were known as the, uh, the european clorox oh yeah and then uh, they merged with the so it became record bankiser Right. And how, where, what city were you based in when you were working for Bankuser? Um, so for, for record Bankuser, that was in Prague. Okay. So I went from Budapest to Prague. And then with them, I went from Prague, I went to Mexico. From Mexico, I went to London. Wow. And then um, Within those five years that you were with yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, the expat world is pretty funny. Um, you have windows of opportunity between two and three years. Because right. you're a problem solver, right? So they hire, they, they hire you because of a reason, right? Um, expats are not, you know, they're, they're by definition, they're not there for long term. They're there to fix a problem. And within two or three years, you either fix it or you don't. If you don't fix right. it, you get fired. If you do fix it, they want you to fix something bigger and fix better. another problem. That's right. <laughs> so that's, that's, you know, pretty much what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's gotcha. a constant door. You know, people are constantly coming and going in that environment simply because yeah. they either got fired or they've done a good job and they move on to something bigger and better. Yeah, yeah. How was the experience in Prague? I mean, just uh, studying. I was at university at the time and uh, they studied, you know, uh, post-Soviet economics in the Eastern Bloc. And uh, the, the wisdom at the time or what was being said was that um, uh, the Czech Republic was kind of a star economy amongst the the former eastern bloc but how was the experience on the ground well first of all you know prague is an absolute enchanting city i mean you know when you grew mm. up as a kid you had your little storybooks with the storybook castles and in palaces and prague it was absolutely gorgeous um wow. it, uh, it was unscathed in world war ii um right hitler apparently had a, a special place in his heart so he didn't bomb it nobody else bombed it so it really like Budapest, 70% of the city was wiped out in World War II. Right. But Prague didn't get hit. So it was, it's, it's in pristine, absolute beautiful condition. So it was a gorgeous city. Um, so it was a lot of fun living there. Um, yeah. And it has the best beer in the world, by the way. So, you know, <laughs> you know whether, you know, they don't have yeah. good wine there, but um, the Czech <laughs> is, is one of the best in the world. So I, I got yeah. to actually visit some of their original breweries, including uh, Boudoir, which is the, you know, European quote unquote Budweiser. There was a whole trademark uh, fight between, you know, Anheuser-Busch and Boudoir in, in Czech Republic about who gets to use Budweiser. So, wow, amazing. Um, but just a um, great, you know, a great city, very, you know, they call it Bohemia for a reason. Right. Uh, so it was just a, it was just a beautiful city that, that was fun to yeah. live in. Um, well, and the, the northwestern part uh, is called Sarland, I believe. 
just a territory yeah and i well, and i think that was part of the claim was that that was german at some point so uh, i think that may have fed into the desire to oh yeah they're always fighting out you know who, who, who <laughs> yes no exactly i mean yeah the the, the way that map has shifted but over I, the years what when, when i got there they actually split into two um into two countries because at, at one time it was it used to be called Czechoslovakia. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, the GM, we, we still ran it on the one management team, but it was two different countries. Wow. So Czechoslovak Republic. So we, we had to have a separate sales yeah. force and a separate legal entity for the Slovak right. Republic. Right. So uh, yeah, it was uh to manage all that. But it was fun, like you said, it was um like I mentioned that at that time, uh, we, we launched two new brands and several line extensions each year. Nice. Uh, while our colleagues in, you know, mar marketing folks back in the U S were crunching analytical numbers about what they should do, um, in Prague, we just boom, food in the market Selling. and, uh, yeah. you know, find, you know, just shot the right copy for it. Advertising, we had a great advertising, uh, a great relationship with the uh, local television stations. So. Um, yeah, we went uh, on that uh, company when I took it over. It was about, again, it was a problem to solve. So when they hired me, it was about 40 some odd million, and it was bleeding at the bottom line to the tune of probably 10 to 15%. And wow. uh, when I left there three years later, um, it was in, um, we grew by about 20 million. So we're up to over 60 million, and we're making uh, about 8% operating profit. Wow, brilliant. So yeah, you did uh, very effective on the cost side. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So when you when you read the book, that's one of the um, when I talk Case about studies. the keys of, uh, of of leadership success. Yeah. I actually in, in one of the chapters, I think it's chapter two or three, I outline some of the key aspects of, of what I did in that company. Amazing. Um, and I think it, it, if I look again, the reason I wrote the book is, is, is if I look in my past and I said, okay, well, what were those times in, in my past, whether either personal growth or working for a company, leading a company um, where it was successful? And what were those times where it wasn't so successful? And I can tie that to when it wasn't so successful, one of those four were not firing on all cylinders. Wow. Nice. Um, if you got those four right, and, and it's, it's really simple um, yeah. in concept, but to implement is not so simple. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you get those four right, um, I can't guarantee you success, um, but um, I can guarantee you that you're going to be on the right track. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Uh, that's great. Um, uh, it sounds like um, your book is just a treasure trove of. Uh, knowledge uh, in that way that's fantastic uh, i'm curious um what problem did you go to solve in in mexico uh mexico was a uh, basically a startup oh, uh, that okay. was, uh, when i went to mexico that was the first um quote unquote latin american because mexico is not really latin america but um mm. that was the first latin american expansion for bankiza bankiza had yeah. a really significant footprint in europe okay in europe um, and then, um, they had a company which wasn't really significant in the U S but they have a, they, they have a U.S. subsidiary yeah. uh, and that was it. Right. So Mexico wow. was our first quote unquote, um, expansion into, yeah. you know, South America or Central America. Um, nice. so we started off as a greenfield 
Um, okay. And then uh, we were looking to acquire a company. And then right after we were looking to acquire a company, then we merged with uh, uh, Reckon and Coleman, which was uh, interesting. That was, um, you can kind of say it was a minority takeover because what happened was uh, Bankiza was like the darling of, um, of the industry. We were growing at, and look, in the, in the consumer goods industry, uh, especially in the cleaning consumer goods industry, if you're growing at 16, 17%, um, comp you know, composite annual growth rate, 16, 17%, that's a yeah, rocket. It's really impressive. That's, yeah, that is a lot. Not a lot for a tech company, but um, right. for, for consumer goods and in the cleaning industry, that was, you know, was a basically an industry leader. And then Reckon and Coleman, on the other hand, which was a very mature English company, they were, they were stagnant. So they weren't growing gotcha. at all. Um, so their board was looking to oust that management team anyway. Okay. So what happened was they merged the two companies and the bank and management team took over the company. Yeah. So yeah. it was like, nice. takeover. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. And so you're there for a short period of time, two years or so. So, um, so in, in England, um, so I was in Mexico and then um, I was probably only in Mexico about two years when the merger happened. Right. And then um, Record and Coleman had a, a large uh, operation there. And I knew um, this, the senior management team or senior leadership team at Benquisa. So they called me back and I was actually part of the, um, the total uh, merger and integration of the three large companies. So nice. uh, that, that was kind of fun because I got to work on a billion dollar merger. You know, when oh, you fantastic, you know, you, you got you kind of looked at the two companies, and you know, we we, we brought in um, McKen I think it was McKenzie, um, as a consultant, and, and they charged us a lot of money for some really simple yeah. stuff, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I guess no, if they do that. On the side tells you you got to do it, and you know, then you follow that lead. Um, <laughs> it's, it's something we certainly could have, you know, internally managed. Um, in fact, we did because. McKenzie was just, I think they had like three or four consultants on, on site and then worked with, you know, the management team, leadership team of the company, but really simple, basic stuff. So yeah. uh, that was a great learning curve for me because then after that, you know, as, as I was, I was making acquisitions for another company, it, you know, okay, I already lived through it and I knew just, you know, basic, simple stuff like, okay, um, Okay, you got two companies, but the customers are the same. You know, the WalMarts of the world are the same. The Carrefours are the same. So, so now you know how do you integrate and get everybody on the same page? Because from the customer's perspective, you know, if one of the companies giving you bigger discounts, then you want the bigger discounts from the other products as well. If you got exactly. better payment terms from one of the companies, you're going to negotiate that. So, you kind of had to, and you know, within I, I think the the time frame was two months or you know something like a month or or, or two months where one invoice would come from the company. And that was actually the project name, One Invoice. Wow, okay. Right. So, That's a great uh, project name for uh, yeah. <laughs> integration. Yeah, so you got two companies and they got to look like one to the customer in a very short period of time. Terms, shipments, pricing, all that stuff. So. Yeah, wow, fantastic. But That's not like ramble on, you just... <laughs> Pardon? I'm just rambling on, so I, I don't want to. No, go. no, this is great. It's very insightful. It's very insightful. Um, Strauss Group, where you were CEO, was that a group that you founded, or were you brought in as CEO? No, I, I brought. I was brought in again. Um, you know, by that time, I established a, a, a 
um, I established a reputation for myself as a turnaround yeah. specialist in emerging markets. Nice. And uh, so, so the Strauss Group is is actually when they first called me, I was like, "Who the heck is Strauss?" Right? <laughs> uh, but but Strauss is like a a Unilever um, in Israel. They're they're one of the okay. largest food companies in Israel, and um, they're owned by you know, I think it was a third generation uh, family. Um, that, that was running the business and they brought in, they were smart enough to bring in some consultants and a consultant said, look, you can look at all kinds of case studies um, of companies that are still privately held um, by third generation families. And, and what happens is the cousins start fighting so much over power and everything else, they just run their businesses into the ground. Into the ground, yeah. Absolutely. So the, um, the, the, the analysts kind of told them, look, start looking outside and bringing some outside. So I was the mm. first guy they brought in who was um, a non-Israeli. And on top of that, I was not even a Jew. So uh, <laughs> before that, everybody that ran that company was um, either from Israel uh, and obviously, you know, they, those guys were Jewish. So Jewish, yeah. um, I was the first guy that came in and um, like any smart, you know, family in Israel, they have to have a nest egg outside because yeah, that country is such a volatile country. Anything yeah, can happen sure. at time. Exactly. So um, their nest egg was the international division, which was all coffee. Mm. So they hired me to run their international division, which was the coffee group. Uh, nice. And, that was and where were you based at that time? Um, based in Amsterdam. Okay. Um, in, in Holland. Uh, Holland and Israel had a um, an agreement where um, they could... Um, send send the, the the funds the profits back to israel and not get taxed on it so nice. they had that um they had agreement between Holland and israel so that's the reason that they did it yeah no, that's great well fantastic and um that didn't last at about uh, three four years um yeah 2001 to 2005 so four years now. okay Roger. And um, I noticed from uh, your LinkedIn that you got involved with Lavaza. Was that a part of this uh, Israeli coffee operation? Yeah, so, so, so what happened was, um, you know, Lavaza, at, at that time, we were looking for, um, I got to tell you, man, the, um, for, for a small company out of Israel, they had, you know, a lot of kuhuts, you know, what they call it, because um, at one time I was sitting at the table um, seeing um, how we would buy Folgers from Procter & Gamble in the US. <laughs> nice. So a small Israeli yeah, company, fantastic. we're in the shopping yeah. street. Um, yeah. so we were looking at acquisition candidates and we bought a lot of small companies in emerging markets. Um, but um, yeah, so that was you know kind of a you know growth strategy for them um, to go outside of, of Israel through to mergers and, and, and acquisitions. Um, but I think I lost my train of thought. You asked a specific question. I'm not well, sure. I was curious about uh, Lavazza fitting into Lavazza, uh, yeah. where so, you used so to. One of the things that we did with Lavazza was we we signed a memorandum understanding with them that we would distribute their brand all over the world. Because what happened was with the Strauss Group, we had supermarket brands, right? Yeah. But we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have a brand that was uh, really prestigious uh, for restaurants and hotels and, and stuff like that. So, and Lovatsa, outside of Italy, they always partner with people. Mm. So in fact, what they did was they broke up the distribution agreements in emerging markets 
and they consolidated all those uh, agreements under one roof with the, with the Strauss Group. So we distributed the lots uh, throughout all of emerging markets that we had a very strong footprint in. Gotcha. So that's how I am at Lavazza. And then okay. um, when um, I had two kids already back in the US uh, going to universities and stuff, then we decided, well, let's see if we can get back to the US. And okay. so the fact was that um, with the pedigree that I had was a great pedigree in emerging markets and everybody wanted to hire me, but in the US it was worthless. Mm. So um then i decided to leverage a relationship with lavazza and i opened a distribution company in the us uh for lavazza products they just nice. had launched uh, they had just launched a new product uh, which was called the blue lavazza blue product so okay. i set up a distribution for them in the us and i did that for a little over 10 years um wow. and then I exited from that in 2016. wow brilliant and that was uh based out of san francisco yeah yeah, yeah. okay and so you were living there up until 2016? Until 2016, yes. Yeah, wow, okay. Well, and then you also started your um, leadership coaching practice um, around yeah, 2005. Yeah, so it was another one where I, I kind of looked in the future and I said, all right, well, what's, what's next? Right? Yeah. Um, and um, I kind of, I, I guess I reached my you know, uh, age of maturity or, or age of wisdom. And I said, okay, well, it's, it's time to start giving back. Yeah. Um, and how can I give back? How can I share my experiences? How can I get people to be more successful by learning through my mistakes and, and my successes? Um, so that's when, you know, I started, you know, going down that road. And um, that's how this book was born, where I was kind of, yeah. okay, well, um, you know, at first I was just um, writing down stories because, um, you know, one of the things that I also talk about in the book is, is the way you connect with people is through stories. So no, that's 100% uh, true. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, there, there are people who understand how to inform. And then there's folks who are good communicators. And there's a handful who are good connectors. Yeah. The people who are good connectors are all really are great connectors because of the stories that they share. So I just kind of started listing all these stories. And then, you know, a few months into it, I said, man, I got enough stories here to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wrote a book. That's great. Yeah. So uh, really your coaching practice is what uh, kind of uh, helped you conceive of the idea of writing C-Suite and beyond. And uh, when did you actually start putting uh, the proverbial pen to paper? So um, the idea came about uh, mid 2016. That's okay. when I just uh, divested from the other distribution business. And then, you know, I had some free time on my hand. I said, I started, you know, telling all these stories. So I started writing down all these stories and then that just evolved naturally into a book. Um, then probably rewrote it. Um, well, the first thing that I did was uh, I wrote a couple of chapters and then sent it off to a handful of friends and say, hey, what do you guys think? And the feedback was pretty um, consistent. Everybody said, Tom, you're a terrible writer. <laughs> uh, but good friends. Know. I mean, you, you can always rely on them to be. Um... <laughs> but every, everybody liked the stories. They just said, look, you know, the, the writing style needs to, to be upgraded. But everybody loved the stories. So I said, oh, well, that's that's the important thing. I, I can yeah. get an editor to fix all that stuff. But exactly. You know, I'm going to come up with your stories. So then I completed the book, kind of 
read it, um, rewrote it, or you know, fine-tuned it. I did that twice, and then I said, okay, well, I think it's in good enough shape to start, you know, seeing who would be interested. And then um, Carper Collins picked it up. Um, you know, great. they put it through professional editing and, and writing. So, and the way I wrote it, um, we'll see, you know, how many copies I sell. Um, but based on, you know, what the response is from the market, uh, I can easily write five books just off this because, you know, if I could take each one of those key chapters and, and keys to success and I can kind of expand that into a book of its own. Yeah, so yeah, maybe I'll be a, a published author of five books and I just, not just one. Fantastic. I, I don't think there's any reason to slow down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like it uh, should be full speed ahead. Um, one of the things you talked about earlier, Tom, was the kind of figuring out your identity or figuring out what you were an ideal role for yourself. Maybe share with us a little bit more now that we have the full picture of your background of experiences. So, um, you know, it took me a while, but if you, the, so the, the four keys in, in the book that I talk about, the, uh, the first key is um, your character. Mm. So, um, and, and a character for company is the company culture. It pretty yeah. much the, you know, it comes down to the same thing. In fact, if you have a startup, uh, usually what happens is the founder's character becomes a corporate culture by default until they kind of you know, design a, a different one. And um, I always say, look, um, not everybody knows who they are. Yeah. Right? Um, I talk to a lot of people and they hate the jobs, they hate what they're doing, they're really not happy with themselves. And it, it all kind of boils down to not having a strong identity in yourself. So um, the, the way I like to define it is imagine three circles where they intersect. I think, I think they call it a man diagram. Right? So yeah. um, ask yourself three questions. Uh, the first question is, who am I? The second question is, what am I passionate about? And the third question is, what am I good at? Hmm. So where those three intersect, that's your sweet spot. That's where you should be living your life. Right? So Amazing. if I look at myself, it took me a while to figure this out. It, you know, it didn't kind of dawn on me. Um, graduating from college to say, okay, what, what are those three questions? <laughs> uh, so right. basically I'm a servant leader. Um, mm. I'm passionate about uh, making other people better. And I'm pretty good at mentoring and leading. Mm. Right, so so yes. the beauty of that is, is you can take that formula anywhere uh, in your life. Right? So you can say, look, I'm a servant leader and I could be a servant leader at work. I could be a servant leader at church. I could be a servant leader in my family. Um, I could be uh, making people better. I could be adding value to them, um, whether that's my customers, whether that's my suppliers, uh, whether it's my you know tennis team, you know whatever. And then mentoring and leading. I could be mentoring my employees. I could be mentoring my kids. I could be mentoring my friends. Um, so that formula works anywhere um, in your life. And, and that's mm -hmm. the beauty of it, because I know some folks who are, I would call them almost schizophrenic, because they have one set of values, um, one identity at work, 
which is a diff different identity when they're at home, which is a, again, a different identity somewhere else. And, and that just gets confusing to me. Yeah, I, I think because then you end up living your life in silos. Well, where am I now? I'll come at work. I have to behave a certain way. Um, and like I said, you know, for me, it took many years for the light to go off. Yeah. Um, Great that it did. And I write about also in the book that, you know, early on in my career, I, I was a very different personality at work that I was in my social life. Mm. Um, in fact, you know, we had one story where two of my friends who actually I traveled with, um, we did a lot of projects together where Monday we would get on the plane and Friday we'd get on the plane and come back home. We did, we did this for months. So it's not like they never saw me, you know, after work, you know, we would go out to dinner, we would socialize. And then they came out and, and spent the weekend with me in my you know, my summer house. And they walked up to my wife, Kathy, and says, man, there's something drastically wrong with your husband. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, who's that guy? Wow. <laughs> so said, well, you know, he's just, that's just Tom. That's just Tom yeah. on his, yeah. you know, leisure. So, uh, you know, that I kind of just found out that, um, you can build some very strong relationships at work. You can have a lot of fun with people at work. Um, and, and in fact, people like having fun, you know, sure. whether you're colleagues, whether they're employees uh, or they're just friends, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with developing friendships. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's absolutely crucial and beneficial to develop friendships um, at, at uh, you know, through your work and, through your professional circle, just as much as it is to have yeah. the friends through your social circle. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that so took a, that took a while for me to figure out. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, the book is really structured around these four keys that you talk about. So, so the four keys, so again, um, you know, the first one is the culture and the character. And, and by the way, if you're an organization, um, you have to be very intentional about uh, forming a culture. Yeah. Because if you're not, you will get a default one. Right? So yeah. if, if you're conscious about developing a culture, uh, identifying a set of values that's common to the organization, and then making sure you have a plan of action where um, that culture is reinforced every day throughout the organization. So it's not just posters on a wall. Um, if, if you are kind of conscious of that, then um, you know, then that will kind of ingrain into the organization. Um, if you're not, then you will get a default culture because you will end exactly. up with something, right? Um, so for example, that, um, you know, when we turned, one of the things that we did with the, uh, with the Czech company is um, they, they didn't really have a, a strong culture. It was kind of, everybody was kind of running around um, trying to figure out what they should do. Nobody really understood their role. Um, and and the and we did some 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 basic stuff to get everybody on the same board. You know, we defined values. Um, we uh, we wanted to get an entrepreneur winning culture in that organization. Mm. So that you know, to 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 able to do that, you know, first um, you had to get everybody on the same page and everybody to understand what their role was to to get to sure. that winning culture, right? So yeah. something as simple as a daily sales report. Right, which the company didn't have at the time, you know, just, okay. So we've, you know, we got to do, you know, 5 million this month and we're 20 days into it and we only sold 1.5 million, right? So, so everybody needs to understand that 
um, you know, daily sales report. Okay, well, we've got 30 days in a month and everybody's got to pull their way to do so much sales per day, right? So something as simple as that. Um, and I remember um, I was probably about six or eight months into it. Um, one of my middle-level managers um, resigned, was, was going to a different job. And I always made a point to, if somebody was high enough in the organization, I would always do an exit interview. So I kind of asked him, I said, uh, so, you know, what's going on? Why are you leaving? And his answer was, well, it's, it's not fun around here anymore. All, all everybody talks about is making plans. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, and, and that's what happens when you start establishing a culture. Yeah. Um, then people buy into the culture. And when they see that um, it's not for them, they leave on their own. Uh, yeah. In in two and a half years while I was there, I only let two guys go. Nice. Right. Um, some people bought into the culture, bought into the vision, bought into the values. Other people didn't, and yeah, they left us. Couldn't. You didn't yeah, have to yeah. ask them to leave. Right. So then, then the second key is is um, having a vision. Mm, right. Um, so the first one is culture or character for an individual. Uh, the second is a vision. Um, and again, a vision should be long-term. A vision is not something that's going to happen in two or three yeah, years. That's four right. Four or five years. Right. Um, the, one I, the example I use all the time is Coca-Cola. Right. Yeah, even before the internet, even before Coca-Cola had a website, if you look at the annual report going back 50, 60, 70 years, they always said, we refresh the world. Yeah, no, so well said. Oh, it's so simple. <laughs> I was a big fan of Coca-Cola for the longest years, owned KO stock for a while. Um, and even I remember this, My uh, when I took the GMAT, I, yeah. uh, that, my essay was on Coke, Coca-Cola, yeah. and uh, I got six out of six. <laughs> so I have fond memories of it. Well, in fact, I, actually, now, Tom, I remember the question. The question was, um, how do you juggle short-term and long-term uh, objectives? And I said, well, Coca-Cola is a great example of this because they've got this great vision of building this brand that is a global icon and recognizable, yet every quarter they're hitting their shareholder numbers. They're hitting their numbers if they're reporting to the street. And so they've managed to you know, make sure the distribution-wise and, and units sold and cases sold is all falling into line and making those minor adjustments, but also thinking about their long-term uh, objectives. Of yeah, so, so when you look at that vision statement, it's so easy for their suppliers, for their customers, uh, for their employees, everybody buys into it because look, it's about two things. Exactly. It's about making refreshing products and it's about global footprint, right? Yes, we refresh exactly. the world. Yes. So I can tell you when an Elon Musk uh, colonizes Mars, you know, Coca-Cola is going to be up there. Because that's right. <laughs> you know, so it's really easy. So that's that's what a good vision statement does. Um, yep. it, it's very easy for people to buy into. Uh, it's very easy to understand. If, if your vision statement is like two and three sentences, you know, running on, you know, we're usually when you, whenever I see a vision statement that says, you know, we're here to serve our customers and create shareholder value, you know, like, what the heck does that mean? Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. what is exactly is a bunch words. of buzzwords that exactly rally around because it's yeah. meaningful. Right? It's yeah. Just yeah. It is. So you know, for example, my personal vision statement is I'm a man of God, leader of men. So wow, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, again, it's it's not something that 
you know, I developed in, in one day. It, it took a while to figure it out. Um, but uh, what a vision statement allows you to do, like you mentioned before, it, it really helps your decision making. So yeah. all the major decisions you make in your life, um, you put it through that test. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, so, that makes perfect sense. You know, for me, it's, it's, you know, whatever I'm going to do and it's a major decision, okay, um, is it something that's going to lead people down the right direction? And, and two, um, you know, it, is, it, is it godly? Yeah. Oh, nice. That's really great. Well, um, if you're comfortable, please share with us the third and fourth key so we can entice the audience to, uh, to buy your book. Yeah. So the, so the third one is a, a, just a growth strategy, right? Like I mentioned yeah. to you earlier, um, you have to have a strategy that is aligned with your vision statement. Right? Yeah. Um, so again, um, nobody wants to be worse off than they were last week or last year. So any healthy strategy, in my opinion, is a growth strategy. Nice. Right? And it's just really setting the right priorities. Um, you know, one of the things for any individual is, you know, whoever tries to sell you a time management course, tell them you're full of baloney. There's no such thing. You can't manage time. All you can do is manage priorities. Uh, so so yeah. basically, when you're putting together a growth strategy, um, you set up two grids. You know, one grid is how you manage your priorities. And the second grid is how you manage your money. Yeah. What are you investing it in, right? Uh, so in that case where, you know, we turned that company around and, you know, we grew by 20 million and, and became a positive operating profit, it was just kind of looking at the products and say, okay, well, you know, this particular category, uh, we're not really going to spend any media money on it because it's very expensive. And this stuff is basically cash cow. So we're yeah. not going to fund it. We're going to fund it through promotion. We're going to fund it through other stuff but it's not going to be through advertising. And what are we going to fund through advertising, right? Uh, those are, you know, those were the categories that we wanted to grow because they were highly profitable, high margin items. So just again, putting priorities, where are we going to spend the money? What are we going to spend the money on? Right? What's our priorities? What's below the line? What's above the line? And, and that's how you put a, a strategic growth together. And that, that really is a three-year window. Right? Yeah, so no, absolutely. For any large organization, it's a three-year rolling budget plan whatever they call it a strategic yeah. plan but looking beyond three years is really worthless because the world changes too quickly yeah so take a three-year window um you lock in your budget for next year so that's yeah. kind of locked in and then towards the end of next year you start looking at what are we going to do for next three years again locked in one year so it's a so rolling three years and it's always should be focused on, on strategic growth Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And I'll fix in there. And then the last one is is really your your team. Oh yeah. Everybody, of course. Everybody should have his inner circle, right? Um, now, what I talk about in the book, which which I think is is important, is is a lot of us tend to surround ourselves with like minded individuals. True. Right. They you know sometimes they even call it oh we got chemistry right. Um, <laughs> that actually, in my opinion, is the biggest mistake. Yeah. You should you should surround yourself with diverse thinking yeah exactly um so um i can kind of and this is just you know from years of experience um first of all the, the one thing that i love about growing up in new york is um you you get to uh, be able to understand people's character in a very short period of time because True. you just meet so many different types of folks yep. so i can usually sit down with somebody across the table for about 30 minutes 
And um, after that 30 minutes, I'll, I'll kind of walk away from that table to say, yeah, I really don't want to have anything to do with this person. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's true. I love yeah, it. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, but the, the other thing is, is one of the things when I was early, um, I went through, you know, Myers and Briggs and LSI and all kinds of studies. Sure. Um, so, so I found out that I'm a very much of an action oriented individual. Okay. So, um, and, and this is an oversimplifying way to do it, but you can kind of put people into four buckets. You know, one is action oriented thinking. The second bucket is analytical folks. Right? The third one is, is strategic large thinkers, you know, visionaries. And a fourth one is the, the sensing individuals. And so yep. for example, let's say you want to launch a product. You know, the, the action oriented individuals, you know, they say, look, our deadline is September 1st. We got to launch it September 1st, right? So we got to do everything. Everybody got on board and we have to do everything by to get that you know, product out September 1st. The analyticals are like, well, you know, we, we need to understand this better. You know, we, why are we hurrying it for September 1st? You know, are we doing the right thing? Uh, you know, let's get a couple more, you know, data points, right? Um, the strategic thinkers are like, all righty, well, you guys just do it. I'm on to the bigger next idea. Right? So, <laughs> right. you know, what's, what's the next product that we want? Right, right. And then the sen sensing individuals are like, all right, well, let's think about how this product is going to affect the environment, how this product is going to affect, you know, um, the individuals. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's a, it's a different orientation of how people look at problems. The problems mm, are true. Yes, so, exactly. So when it's I was young, way... like I couldn't, like analytical people to me were procrastinators. I couldn't stand them. I was like, mm. come on guys, get off your, you know, behind and, and start doing stuff, you know? And and strategic, I used to call them wing nuts. Man, man you're, you guys are wing nuts. Like, you know, what the, you know, get with it. And then, you know, the analytical, you know, I, I used to call them the tree huggers, right? The, the tree yeah. huggers. Were yeah. Yeah. But once I understood and appreciated that they just look at the same problem differently, and it's not that, you know, they have bad will or, or anything. It's just like they look at the world different than you. Yeah. And yeah. the beauty of, of, of getting a team together is to make sure you balance it with all four individuals. Smart. Because if you surround yourself with all analytical people, then, and, and I actually had a client like that, and it was like, man, until you change a team up, you're never going to get any ideas yeah. up because you just analyze it to death and nobody yeah. wants to make a decision on it. Yeah. So you got to change your team up to get some other diverse thinking in there. Yeah. No, that um, makes sense. You know, all action oriented people, they, they may do the wrong thing, but they'll do it yeah. very efficiently. Right? Yeah, yeah. So um, put a team together um, with diverse thinking. And also what, you know, what, uh, what brings diverse thinking is also different backgrounds. I remember we were um, as part of the Wharton executive, um, there was a Wharton fellows program that I belonged to. Oh, so, sure. Nice. So we went out to Seattle one year. Uh, and sat down with Costco and Starbucks and uh, Microsoft. And uh, Starbucks kind of, I remember, they actually put us to work. So rather than just making a presentation to us, they put us to work and they said, okay, well, this is the problem. You guys work on it. You tell me what you think. So um, at that time, they were just starting to expand their footprint international. They were still pretty much a, a company that brought an Italian idea into the U.S., which worked well for them because in the US, you know, it was a market where you can educate people on yeah. buying a coffee drink because everybody was drinking it differently. 
Um, and then, um, and I remember making a presentation and, and Owen Wells was the uh, CEO at the time. And um, he kind of looked at me and said, who the hell is this guy? But I basically said, look, I'm, I'm looking at your annual report, your executive team. You're a bunch of white watch guys. I, how are you yeah. going to go international? You, you better get some international names on this, you know, executive team because you're a bunch of white guys sitting around Seattle. Um, you have no idea how Italy works or or how exactly. Germany works yeah. or how Brazil works or how Russia works or how Indian works, you know. And and if you look at the large uh, international companies, whether it's Pepsi or the other ones or Microsoft, you you, you see a lot of diverse leadership in there now. Yeah, um, no, that's true. No longer just the, uh, the Steve Bowmans of the world, right? Exactly. Gosh, um, Tom, your uh, book is, feels like it's full of such great uh, insight and wisdom, all through told through this lens of uh, a story, which is which is really phenomenal. Um, I think we're going to get a lot of our audience members to uh, to reach out for it and and, and order it very quickly. If you could share um, favorite region of the world for wine. Favorite region of the world for wine. Um, I would have to say Verona, Italy. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's very specific city wise. That's yeah, in Tuscany. Verona, Italy. That, that region has the Valpolicella grape. Uh, that's where. Oh, my uh, goodness. Yes. Yeah. Suave and Valpolicella. Yes. I remember. Well, that. I visited Verona. Well, Suave is a white wine. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Valpolicella. Yeah. So, I love Italians. Um, the reason I like it, and I don't, I know we don't have much time, but um, I, I just find that um, two neighboring countries, France and Italy, France is all about show, Italy is about, all about enjoyment. Mm. Both very high quality, right? Yeah. Whether it's food, uh, whether it's wine, you know, it's just a presentation, a preparation. Uh, in France, it's all about show. Um, in, in Italy, they just, you know, if you, in, in fact, when you go to Bologna, their slang is, the world eats to live. We live to eat. <laughs> Beautifully said. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we'll have to get together for a bottle yeah. of uh, Voltolicella. I would really love that. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll have to actually share a glass of wine. I just talk about it. Exactly, for sure. Tom, full of gratitude. Thank you so much for uh, being for on the show. For your candor. Pleasure.